Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week we're discussing the classic, iconic Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Ooh, iconic. (laughs) Well, it is. You know, someone asks, hey, what's the best episode of Star Trek? And a lot of the people, a lot of people will answer, oh, it's City on the Mm -hmm. Edge of Forever. It's got Joan Collins. It's got a doomed romance. It's got everything. (laughs) I'm actually a little miffed because I suggested this thinking that we would talk about it and decide that it's kind of overrated and we would get to do that thing where we go, hey, this beloved old episode is actually really terrible. It's really, really good. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I'm so mad. (laughs) It's so cute how you're disappointed that you liked it. (laughs) Sometimes things are overhyped and sometimes it's like, no, this is genuinely outdated and genuinely has problems, but it's a really good story. I think a lot of it is all of the components are really well done. Yes. The acting, the costumes, the set design, the lighting, not the music. (laughs) They did their best. (laughs) But the script, the plot... Everything is sort of well done. There's not not something that's that's dragging it down. And so it comes off as not just a good story, but polished. Yeah, it has a level of confidence and professionalism that honestly, let's be real, we don't often see with the original series. Like, as you say, the only fault is the music and everything else you know sure the depiction of new york city is a fairly <laughs> cheap backlot or whatever but that is you know it's it's a product of its time and i'm not saying that to excuse any racism i'm saying that because it is cheap i think that their flop mm-hmm. to use the the word the... yes i love the the set design of of their little apartment and how Spock's radio is like all over a table and part of a chair yes! and, and creeping onto the windowsill. Like, I, I love that. It's so, because it's really difficult to swallow the idea that he created, you know, he recreated his tricorder uh, mechanisms with things you can find in that time period. But they committed to it and yes. so i do believe it it's silly but they make it work which is true of so much of, of the original series and this is honestly not that silly a story like its idea of history as a linear progression conveyed yeah. through uh old movie clips is obviously outdated but it's also something that the audience of the time would have understood and and now still understand and the performances are great. Joan Collins in Star Trek has sort of almost become a punchline, but she gives a really <laughs> wonderful performance. Edith Keeler wouldn't be who she is if not for that performance. I don't think this episode would work as well with no, someone else in that role. No, even even Shatner is great. Like he is so of, often a parody of himself, and his acting style is very dated. But he's charming and he's handsome, and you can genuinely understand why he was the hero of the show. I mm. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's a really good episode and I'm so mad about it. <laughs> I mean, I still have problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're Mostly with the... I just don't like the... I don't like the conclusions that pretty much everyone comes to. Like, I don't like anything that people decide. They, they're just... They're not the choices I want them to make. No. And I... And so it, what it happens is it comes off as this, like story like almost a fairy tale you know like a, with a with a moral yeah, and a, yeah. a like it's it's trying to teach me something instead of being like this adventure story romance so i want them to to think about their choices more and of course they only had whatever 48 minutes they couldn't do they they, they did a perfect job i'm not like angry with them for not being different than <laughs> they would have been in 1967 and like you know they i can't be angry at anyone involved in this um but as someone who is not from the 60s and mm. grew up with lots of time travel stories and thinks about things in a different way and also like was raised to be a pacifist mm. by ba basically Edith Keeler. Like <laughs> I can't, I can't really conclude that what happens is, is correct or the way that I want it to be or what I would have done. No, no. And I think Edith is a really interesting character in 2021 because we know that had she lived, she would have gone on to an appeasement movement so powerful that it allowed the Nazis to win. And I'm mm. kind of, I kind of went into this feeling like we were going to spend a lot of time uh, calling her out for that. But I think there is an argument to be made that Edith's position is an analogy for Vietnam and there's an implicit criticism of the peace movement of the 60s and certainly Star Trek was very ambivalent about Vietnam and there are episodes where it seems to be very anti-war and episodes where it's like well this is very sad but we're just going to have to go to war with the Klingons anyway and yeah. it, it really depends who is writing and I think that is a reasonable interpretation that Edith is meant to represent the peace movement, but I also think that there is more nuance than that because as Spock and Kirk discuss, she is right overall, but just in this one particular instance, she's wrong. And it's 1930 and, you know, Hitler was not yet Chancellor of Germany and mm -hmm. at the time she was... Like, for 1930, she was right. For 1960, she was right. For 1939 to 1945, she was very, very wrong. I found it very interesting that you wrote in our document here, Edith is clearly dedicated to not punching Nazis. Well... Because that <laughs> sort of suggests that she's not right for 2021. Or at least 2020. <laughs> That's certainly the theory that, that the thinking that I brought into the episode as I watched it. And like I said, I do think it's more nuanced than that. But also, this is this is a flaw in her that in that other timeline, she is not able to adjust her thinking to 
deal with new evidence. And, and that actually doesn't make her a bad person. That makes her a more interesting character than a woman who is purely a saint. Yes. So I, I disagree with her. I think her actions in that other timeline are wrong, but I, I understand them and I think she would have been completely unbearable and not remotely as iconic as she became otherwise. It's really interesting to me because... I don't know where I'm going with this, but, like, she... Let me start over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so so her hugs, not guns, I guess, philosophy mm -hmm. is maybe naive. Definitely naive, I guess. And, right, you're saying it's wrong in the face of quote-unquote absolute evil because that doesn't exist, but sure. The closest we come to absolute evil, I guess, it. I think that yes. at least in pop culture, Nazis that's what they are, even if it's, like, setting aside historical reality in pop culture, Nazis are absolutely evil. Yeah, They're, yeah. like, a shorthand for it, basically. If you want to show that someone's good, you set them up against some Nazis or some Nazi allegories. Just last week, I and... saw the first Indiana Jones movie for the first time, and that is exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> so, on that sort of pop culture scale she's definitely in the wrong because she's she's not sympathizing with nazis but she is empathizing with nazis and you're not supposed to do that but well, I, I don't think it's even that i think she I, I, okay if if we say she's empathizing with nazis why is she not empathizing with their jewish victims well, I mean, I don't, we see like one slideshow of, of what she was doing. So I have no idea what happened in that timeline or what she knew or what she knows or anything. I don't know how she met FDR. Like that's, that's random. So I'm saying that you're saying like that empathy is her flaw, that she's thinking about everyone as um, a human, like every she's humanizing everyone at, mm. on one level instead of seeing that there are, that some people are have less humanity in them and uh, that there's this like, and I don't mean like less humanity because that actually is something that Nazis say, so I don't want to say <laughs> that, but like <laughs> that some people make worse decisions, I guess. Yeah, I don't know but, if I think that empathy is her flaw. I think it's one of her great strengths. I think it's more that in, at some point in the 1930s, she becomes, she prioritises peace as a concept over everything else, including oh. the well-being of others. And it's, it's, I'm not quite a pacifist, but I'm close. But I feel like that is the point where, uh, this is really complicated. God, I wish we'd show. We, we should have done Spock's brain. I had a thought, and yes. and I have to say it, even though it's ridiculous. But like you said, that that she uh, prioritized peace 
over everything else. Mm. And I and I thought, oh, like Satine Crees. <laughs> no, and, no. And I was like, and so like, you know, not as many people watch Clone Wars as watch Mandalorian, I would say. And the Mandalorian like wouldn't exist as a series if like Mandalore wouldn't have been destroyed <laughs> if, if Satine Crees didn't. Edith Keeler all over it. And so, like, that's kind of great to me. And I'm really super excited now because I love Satine, but I also think that that is her, like, her rigidity is her is her main downfall. And so is Obi-Wan's, and that's why they're such a great couple. And it's so, true. like, it makes me like Edith Keeler more <laughs> because now I can see her not as just this Star Trek angel type person mm. uh you know like they put her on a pedestal i would say oh, star trek fandom kirk for sure <laughs> like yes. yes even even spock is like you know she has to die but she's great <laughs> so, so uh and and maybe that's where i like i haven't been able to get in her head and really like so i only see it as this binary Mm. idea of either she's on the pedestal or she's has to die because she doomed us all you know yeah. whereas you're saying there's a lot of nuance here and 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 uh, that's what makes her good i'm deeply touched that you got that out of my incoherent <laughs> attempt at yeah. an idea but yeah i think i think that's how i feel i think this is her flaw as a character and it's a really interesting one especially for the 60s because they're going, here is this great woman who is future-minded and a humanitarian and almost a proto-hippie in her love for humanity. But that is also applied uncritically, that thinking is also a mistake. And mm -hmm. I don't and she's not vilified for it. That's that's what I really like. And that is the honest the absolute opposite of what I was going to what I expected to be saying as I came into this episode. I, th I think she's interesting and I think she has the potential to be a lot more complicated than, than, than people realize. I think this episode could be like a feature length story that, you know, maybe not now in when Star Trek movies have to have a space battle every 30 minutes and there has to be stakes and someone has to die and all of that stuff. But if it was not a start, like it was a time travel movie, but a time travel movie like the Terminator where like it's small and yeah. yet also about the end of the world, but like the end of the world part isn't important. Isn't the important part. The important part is the feelings between the people. Like, I think that this is sort of that sort of same bottle as like a Terminator. And I wish that we could have gotten to know Edith more. I wish that we could have gotten to see Kirk and Spock in the thirties more. Yes. Cause that's interesting and funny and fun. And I, you know, even McCoy, like I wish yeah. we got to see more of McCoy grappling with what's real like that's super interesting and we basically get two sentences and good lord DeForest Kelly just knocks it out of the park in his two sentences you saw my dot point in our notes we did not deserve DeForest Kelly I am amazed that like, I want a whole like 
extra episode just about what McCoy is going through <laughs> because it was so interesting and it was such a uh, an interesting idea of not being able to know what's real, both when he's like uh, high on on the courtrazine court or whatever, and when he is has come down from that, but mm. is in a completely different place and is like, this is not. This is not what I remember. I remember being <laughs> on a starship. It looks nothing like this, you know? And and then you having it's like that um Riker episode frame of mind where it's like yeah. which which one of these things is real? And that's super interesting. So I feel like this could be longer and and it would I it's again, I'm not saying that it's not perfect as it is. I'm just saying it's a really interesting it brings up lots of really interesting ideas that could be explored. No, what are I, I agree. Scotty and Uhura are doing on the Guardian planet. What can they see? Are they watching when like eating popcorn? Like, <laughs> I want to know. And, and when Kirk says like, "If we don't come back, you have to go next." Like, I know. I want Uhura wandering around 1930s New York in her mini skirt and stealing clothes and falling <laughs> in love with a beautiful social worker. Oh my gosh, so good! Like. I like there's just so many different ways it could go but yeah. I have to say it's it's both that that directive that that Kirk says when he you know when you've decided it's been long enough you yes. guys gotta try it next and everyone has to like you know we, there's four more of you so there's four more tries to get this right um and if you fail at least you'll be like living your best life wherever you end up and it's like that's interesting like that's another thing it's like oh i want to see everybody living their best life in this alternate timeline yeah like uh picard's orders at the end of first contact when they're loading up the escape pods to find right. a quiet corner and stay out of history's way but that line that idea that they could try as well and then at the very end of the episode and the guardian like they pop out of the guardian and guardian's like cool job guys everything's reset what do you want to do now and they just leave and, Kirk's and like, it's like i want no more part of this place <laughs> the guardian is like ready to go again and, and do it over and it's like hey let's go save edith this time and they're they they don't even consider that <laughs> really and like that's what i say when i say i've watched too many time travel things <laughs> and it's like guys you could definitely go get her and fake her death and it wouldn't, like, nothing bad would happen because no one would know what, what, what happened to her. They would assume she's dead and you could, like, bring her back, you know, bring her into the future. That's what I was out. going to suggest. Like, she comes into the future, she adopts to, adapts to the miniskirt really, really fast and, you know, 20 years later she's the one who introduces Gillian Taylor to the 23rd century and acts as, it's, like, her guy. It's, it's her perfect future like it's in her right. perfect existence she would finally be somewhere where her ideas weren't radical <laughs> like yes yes it's just so yeah so that's why i'm mad i'm mad that especially now that i've seen yesteryear yes and i know that they go back to that planet and like hang out and do stuff <laughs> it's like guys save edith keeler edith keeler does not have to die <laughs> like that's that's not that you does the story doesn't have to end that way. I was thinking as I prepared for this episode that I really hope we get to title it Edith Keeler in the 23rd century. 
And now I've said it, so we can call it that. That's where she belongs, and she should, like, why? We don't, we don't need dead woman in the past. Right. And she I doesn't think... have to stay with Kirk. She can do whatever she wants. You have a note, uh, why is this so popular? And it's like fandom loves time travel, doomed romance, and dead women. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is not to say that the only reason it's popular is fandom loves dead women, but I think there is a laziness in accepting Edith's death. And I don't necessarily blame the characters because they are not the time travel pros that they will become. But mm -hmm. I just I just think that in writing it, Harlan Ellison and Jean Kuhn rewriting it, uh, wanted to tell a tragic love story and right. the only way they could do that was by killing Edith and saying it absolutely yeah. had to happen. And again, not motivated by misogyny, just these are the tropes that we're dealing with. Right. Like, it w for some reason, it wouldn't matter as much to Kirk and Spock if she survived. Like, right. that's that's what they're, that's where they're coming from. They're coming from this place where in order for this to be this beautiful, tragic love story, she has to die. And so they started with that idea. Mm. They started with Edith Keeler must die, as Spock says, and built out, out of that. So whereas I always start from, what if not? <laughs> What if yeah. they didn't have to die? <laughs> well, also, I think we're coming from a different era of television where characters are killed for shock value all the time, and it doesn't really mean much. Whereas with Star Trek, they ca killed a lot of characters, but most of them we didn't really get to know. Normally we just get the red shirts who die, whereas this time it was someone that we care about. Someone that we get to know, and I think most importantly, someone that Kirk cares about. Yes, yes, and that is, like, a lot of Kirk's love interests die. Basically, any time he looks like he's about to settle down, it's like, uh, yeah. uh, uh, the woman dies. That's, that's what, it's, it's so interesting. I really, I feel like it's become such a meme, such yeah. a wrong meme that Kirk is a ladies' man and he's always romancing someone, whereas, like, Kirk... Uh, is a serial monogamist whose love interests die on, at a extreme rate. You so almost start it's to like, wonder if Spock is killing them off. He's he's not. He it's not like he doesn't jump from woman to woman because he doesn't care about them. He jumps from woman to woman because he needs a new woman to like forget how sad he is about the last woman. <laughs> right, and his so, primary, his main love is his ship, but he can't make love to the Enterprise. Really interesting, this reputation that Kirk mm. gets that is really not, at least in TOS, is not there. It's yeah, he it's he's sexy and he has romances, but. It's n he's not treating any of them poorly. Like he doesn't go around and not care about them. There, no. you know, there are a few exceptions, sure, but most and mostly in in TOS, those exceptions are outdated writing and old-fashioned ideas about how it's mm -hmm. acceptable to treat women, rather than right. malice or cruelty on his part. Particularly in the original series, I feel like Movie Kirk is a slightly different character. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and I don't really like the man that original series Kirk evolves into as much. Mm. But TOS Kirk is a gentleman. And as much as it's ridiculous that we've had 20 minutes of Edith Keeler and he's like, I am in love with her. In, in, in the episode, they have they have been hanging out together for, a, for at least... A week? I think a few weeks. I think a few weeks. And yeah, I think it's sort of like they're like, it's a, we're at least a week behind McCoy. And it's and McCoy, I feel, is there for at least a week before... Certainly a matter of days, at least. Like, so it's an episode. So it's like it's at least two or three weeks that they. And it's also like there's the episode where he falls in love with the daughter of the mad scientist, and she turns out to be a robot. Oh yeah. (laughs) So in that episode, it is literally ours. (laughs) Like they do not have a relationship at all. And yet, he's so distraught that Spock has to like make her make him forget her for all time. <laughs> so, like compared to that, his buildup with Edith Keeler, I I believe it because I do see how he's like he has that you know arrow through the eyes uh, look the first time he sees her. You know, mm. he he definitely gets the hard eye emoji and. Then they they like go into the soup kitchen scene and she gives her little speech where she's basically, you know, talking like a Star Trek episode. And it really is Gene Roddenberry's manifesto coming from her mouth. Yeah. And so there's this like real connection, I think, that Kirk is attracted to her and then realizes that that even that like there's this that there is this weird time displaced romance mm. going on that that like he 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 accepts it because she's so be- beyond her time yeah yeah and, and that also cuts out sort of oh. the power differential you get with time travel romance where one partner knows mm. the future and the other doesn't because her grasp of the future is uh pretty uncanny right exactly and also there's you know, the idea that, like, maybe Kirk is thinking, this is my backup plan. If, you know, if I can't get back to the future that I know, at least I can settle down with this lady. Sure, and, sure. And there's also sort of a, you know, we get this really more in the movies where he's, you know, he has the bifocals and he has the, you know, he has to have the real book and he can't, you know, read it on a tablet like a yeah. normal person. You know, so there is sort of this Kirk is a, like, he wants to live back in time. He's one of those, one of those kind of men who wants his reality to, like, go back to the simpler times. Yeah. So, like, and not, I don't mean in, like, the Make America Great kind of way. I, I think, like, Kirk is a, is a, you know, he believes in Edith Keeler and and Gene Roddenberry's utopia. Like Kirk isn't a a bad guy, but he does have this like old fashioned aesthetic. He, that he does, goes for. yeah. 
and the other thing is, you know, this is this is not an episode where Kirk is a jock. You know, he's talking mm. to Edith about the literature of the future and breaking the temporal prime directive, which I assume was invented in response specifically to this episode. And yeah, he's he's the I mean she dies, so yes. So he doesn't have to he doesn't have to worry about what she knows. But he's the gentleman and he's uh, how can I put this? Charming without being empty. Like, I think one of mm. the reasons Edith is drawn to him is that he seems like a guy with a lot of substance, even though he is temporarily embarrassed financially. And, you, yeah, you know what? what? He, like, straight up admits to her that they stole the clothes and that yes! they're hiding from the police. Like, he doesn't even blink an eye. He's just like, this is the way it is. And it's... I, I, I think that that goes a long way with her or yeah. with, you know, anyone in that, in that position. So, yes. and of course, like, I mean, she owns a mission because times are hard. Like it's the thirties guys. No one's, no one's living high right now. No. And so. Although I have to assume just from how she dresses and her accent and everything that Edith comes from a wealthy English family mm. and has left that all behind to serve the poor. Which I respect. Yes, like, you it's, it's feel not like... as the rebel. I love it. It's, it's so a bit... good. It's, it's a bit condescending, but it's not as if she's going home to her mansion. You know, she is living in a tiny apartment just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I respect Edith. I respect Edith as well, yes. And I love, like, her whole look. The, all of the costuming mm. is really, really well done. All of the makeup, like... I, I don't, the, like, Sulu's eyeliner is amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm Sulu just, I'm just saying. <laughs> there, every single person in this episode has amazing eyeliner. And I, mm -hmm. like, I, I just was staring at it the whole time. Even McCoy, when he has, like, the lesions on his yeah. face and stuff. He still had these eyes popping, like, you know, and, and also, like, someone recently posted on Twitter about the cinematographer for TOS and how, like, I don't even remember his name, but he gets, you know, he doesn't get enough credit for how amazing he yes. made all of them look. Particularly, and I remember that tweet, it was particularly Nichelle Nichols, because no one back then really... Right paid attention to light. People now don't know how to, no. to light a black woman or an, an Asian man. And it was gorgeous. <laughs> I was just like, this is, the, everything was just so pretty. You said it, that William Shatner, like literally never looks better. No. He's just so attractive I... in his plaid shirt <laughs> and his golden glow. <laughs> it's just like, wow. I just think that uh, the uniforms of the era are not very not very flattering and aren't that well made so they don't look great on modern television in the remaster and then you put them in what would have been you know contemporary clothes and from the quality of Edith's costumes I'm guessing they came they were borrowed from movie wardrobes because they're beautifully made and it makes sense her makeup is pure 1966 but from the neck down it all looks mostly historically accurate I think she mm. might be wearing 60s bras but other than that <laughs> like she looks right for the era and there's that the one dress that she wears when she almost falls down the stairs 
Oh, like, yeah. I want that dress, guys. <laughs> Where do I get it? The Edith Keeler collection. So beautiful. I would wear everything. I would wear her little purple suit. I would like all of it. I want all of it. And I, yeah, I said my, I have my like line in here that I sometimes feel bad about how much I like depression era looks. Cause it's like everyone was sad. I mean, it's in the title, right? Depression yeah. era. But no, but the fashion. The fashion was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's a nice detail that her clothes are more 1920s than 1930s. Yeah, Because this is right. just 1930 and she's still wearing the drop waist that was about to go out of fashion and all of that. Absolutely. It looks really, really good. It looks think, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like the 20s, 30s, and 40s, I will say, are like some of my favorite fashion eras. Bad time for comfortable for, underwear. For, but... for quote-unquote modern time. Yes. Yes. You know, and it and it's always fun to sort of look at how how things come and go, and you know, like and the '60s are absolutely like another '20s in terms yes. of fashion, like not in terms of like the actual silhouettes, but in terms of like why things were happening. Right, there are periods was... of upheaval. Right, and then so it's just really, really fun to to look at all that. But I've always said that I. If my like my height and and my waist and my like the way I'm put together, I belong in that twenties to forties era. Oh, oh god, <laughs> that's where I need to be. I so. went through a twenties phase in my in my twenties, but I no longer fit any of those any of those clothes and those designs just no longer look good on me. But my mm. gosh, the aesthetic. I have watched every episode of Miss Fisher's Murder, Murder Mysteries. It's a very problematic show, but the costuming is really good. It's like Game of Thrones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just saying. But yeah, so I, I I agree. I think it was definitely, like, and also, like, the, obviously that was, you know, Paramount Black Lot. Like, that yeah. was a set that they built for this episode. And, and then they incorporate what are clearly shots from films and stuff, with uh, shots of the Brooklyn oh, yeah. Bridge. All the Nazi escapes. stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. was actual Nazi footage. It's like, ooh, creepy. So... I but it, I mean, it was really well done. Like this episode, I I it's not my favorite, and I I I sometimes sort of like I don't I sigh. I don't side eye, and I don't disagree with people who say it's the best TOS. But I do sort of sigh it's, because it's such an obvious choice. Like we are, yeah. we are far too cool to choose such an obvious. And it, but it's also episode. it's not representative of Star Trek. No, that's true. Uh, I read, I'm a big reader of Darren Mooney's blog, the movie blog with a zero instead of a, an O in movie. And he has a pretty in-depth post on this episode, which I read yesterday. And mm -hmm. yep, you, he, the one you linked to me, right? Yes, yes. And I'll yeah. put it in the show notes because- Very good. Yeah, he is a smart guy. And like, he has a lot of stuff about why Voyager is bad. And I'm like, I- completely love this post i disagree with your conclusions but i love this post mm. Uh, mm. but he has a lot of stuff from behind the scenes of you know harlan ellison's script and the rewrites and that that was the conclusion on ellison's script that it was very good but it wasn't star trek and mm. 
what we have is a very good episode of Star Trek that is nonetheless atypical. Yeah, it's just, it's not, like, if I was introducing someone to Star Trek... No, it wouldn't be here. Like, I might use this to, like, loop them in, but I wouldn't show them this to get them to like Star Trek, because this is not what Star Trek is about, at least from my perspective. No, no, I think I think that's that's quite reasonable. And I think it says a lot about the show that we're 29 episodes. This is a 30-episode season, uh, but we're, we're at the end of the very first season and doing uh, non-formulaic stuff like this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and in that article, uh, you know, he was saying how because they just nothing was serialized ever. So obviously Edith Keeler was never mentioned again. Mm. And I I wish she was. Like I I would like to to have episodes that did reflect back on her because if we are to believe that She's the she's, love she, of Kirk's she's life. She's the love of Kirk's life. I mean, you know, not to dunk on generations again, mm. but but you can. Why That's free? Like they they have a woman that is never seen in that in that movie. It would be so easy to just name her Edith. Yes, and like bring that back. Like it's just it blows my mind <laughs> that they didn't do this very simple thing to make fans happy. And like, and it would have made no difference to casual. It would have made no difference, the difference exactly. Reference, yeah. no difference whatsoever <laughs> to, to the film as it was. And so it's just, I don't get it. I don't, like, I don't know why we have to live in this world where Kirk forgets everything that happened <laughs> the next time. Right, like you know, it, even even in the movies, it's like mm. two, three, and four are together, but. That's it. One has nothing to do with them. <laughs> and then five, six, and generations have nothing to do with each other or the past. No. Like, none of it is tied up. It's only that one little th- one little trilogy <laughs> that's in the middle that has any, like, character growth over time. Mm. And it's weird. Now, you know, now everything is so serial. Yeah. Uh, I do think that it's a real shame that we haven't revisited edith in tie-in literature and if idw wants to commission us to write a sort of what if where edith comes to the 23rd century you know call us we could do it for all of them rain robinson comes (laughs) to the future edith keeler comes to the future like everybody let's just bring everybody to the future we can do it right right. i know that they go back in time in all of the series (laughs) So we can do this. We can make it happen. When is when is Discovery going to visit the 2020s? Oh my goodness. I mean, part of me, it's like a, it's it's sort of a rite of passage mm. for Star Trek. First you turn your characters into lizards, then you visit the era that, that you're made. <laughs> but Discovery is sort of really different on that mm. scale. Mm. Like, I think Lower Decks is much more likely to go to the past than... Honestly, given ah. what a hellscape the 2020s have been so far, I would rather see Lower Decks do it and make fun of it and have, like, Boimler wearing all the pee A mask. Even though yeah. he's had, he Dr. Tana has given him all the vaccines. So he looks like, he looks like, a, um, in, 
in Back to the Future when he's wearing like their their radiation to go back in yes, time and, and say, yes. "I am Doctor Spock." For like, that's what he would look like. <laughs> no, exactly. Mm-hmm. But that's what like I can see lower because lower decks would take it from that funny level whereas yes. like yeah discovery if discovery went back in 2020 it'd be like wow this sucks like, this is a really bad place and we don't want to be here it would be like that episode <laughs> of deep space nine past tense only the past would be even worse than deep space nine imagined yeah that's the thing is that past tense is like three years away now mm-hmm. and we are so close to making it real like you're so close. But we're also I'm... we're also doing much worse. Like, can you imagine a, a tech bro these days who takes public transport in San Francisco? Yeah, right. No. Yeah. They build their own transport and make you pay for it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, like, they wouldn't build sanctuary districts for the poor because that would be taking resources away from people who could be making money off them. They would be charging money I don't know. to go into the t- sanctuary districts. Like, I mean, I agree, I agree on, on, like, the idea of, yeah, we don't want to give the poor anything. However, there is, like, there is definitely a, you know that um, Amazon in Seattle and their little bubble world? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. So they definitely displaced homeless populations to create their bubble world, and they definitely, like, have created camps to put their homeless in because they don't want people in the bubble world to see them. <laughs> so it's that's basically past tense. <laughs> like, I guess I guess the that's difference where is they're going towards. They put the homeless in camps rather than cordoning off a whole nice area of a suburb that could have just as easily been gentrified. Yeah, again, I don't I don't want to keep again dunking on Spock, but <laughs> the whole idea that Edith Keeler must die just really grates on me because it's like. That is such a lack of imagination. Well, I don't like, think Spock has much of ima- an imagination. Well, that's, I just that's true. feel You're like right. it's Good point. it's uh, something that Sarek really encouraged, and obviously Amanda didn't take hold that well. And so this is this is his conclusion, and Kirk's like, "Well, I always do listen to Spock, so listen why should Spock, I stop right. now?" And, and really, he should have stopped. And again, like I don't remember what episode I said where but McCoy was the heart of the whole thing. Mm. But the, again, McCoy is the heart of the whole thing in this. Like McCoy is the one who's like, uh, we're gonna save her, right? Like he saves her in the first place. Yes. And then he like Kirk physically has to stop him from saving her. Which is <laughs> it, so hard to watch. Like yeah. Shatner's performance there is just absolutely amazing and understated which you don't get to say about Shatner very often again I don't know Shatner and I don't I don't want to psychoanalyze him for sure (laughs) but I think he prefers this kind of script uh yeah yeah and I think he understood this version of Kirk more than like he he realized that he had to convey this quietly. Yes. And I don't yes. know why. Like, I don't know why he thinks that he has to convey everything else loudly. <laughs> but I have to, like, tip my hat to him to say he understood this script and he realized what he had to mm. do to do it. And he honestly did it to perfection. He did. I, I, it's sad that we didn't get to see more of this, this version of Kirk. Um, speaking of Shatner... 
again. Uh, he went on a tear this week on Twitter about how Kirk pos- couldn't possibly be bisexual. And this was in response to Mark Hamill going, oh, sure, if you want to if you want to believe that, that Luke is, is bi, then go ahead. I'm happy for you. Right. Uh, Shatner would prefer that we not do that. Uh, so let's talk about the Kirk Spock of it all. <laughs> I like how you're like, so let's prove him wrong. <laughs> Look, I don't really ship Kirk Spock. I don't really I have any OTPs in the original series. Uh, and I think because of AOS, I kind of prefer Kirk McCoy. But, mm. like... 100%. The subtext, <laughs> the subtext is real. The people who believed, believed and believe oh. in the premise were not crazy. Yeah, I also don't ship Kirk and Spock, but I totally get the domestic, like, that I can believe that they would live out their lives together. Oh, in yeah. This, in this apartment. Like, so totally. I completely believe that. And, and not in a, you know, completely non-sexual way. Well, <laughs> so sooner or later, Spock would hit that far. Sooner rather than later, in fact, given how close and we what, are. And what else would his options be, really? In, right. In 1937. <laughs> like, what's, what's, what's his plan? I guess it would be the next year, right? Cause, yeah, yeah, cause we're just a few months away in, from it. Yeah. So. so if someone wants to check AO3 and confirm that, that this AU has been written, just to put my mind at ease, I'd be very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really do at like us. the way this episode sets up a het romance for Kirk but also acknowledges at the same time how important Spock is to him and I think like that's a really good way of having a cake and eating it too in terms Mm. of not demonizing either character and that's the like that's the thing is that no one literally no one is saying hey Kirk should be gay like no no one is saying that everyone just wants him to be bi or pan you know and can I just have a quick rant about the the fashion on Tumblr to refer to any any woman who has been in a relationship with a man on screen and who that who a fan ships with another woman, calling them a lesbian instead of a bisexual? Mm. Like just the casual biphobia of it all really annoys me. I think that the episode after our next one is scheduled to be bisexuality in Star Trek. Oh, good. So. So look forward to that, everybody. I'm that person who, like, searches desperately for, like, the Spock Uhura fic that mm-hmm. doesn't also include Kirk and Spock, or this Sarah and Amanda fic that doesn't also include Kirk and Spock, or the McCoy and Carol Marcus fic that doesn't also include Kirk and Spock. Like, anything. Any of my relationships have been overrun by mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock. And, like, I get it. They basically cre- like created the idea of fanfiction and slash and all of that, and so like, good on you. It's just and... frustrating when you don't ship the juggernaut pairing. Right, exactly. It's like I just want something else. Right. And this is one of the episodes where I completely buy their argument. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> you are correct, people. But I'm also like, can't they just be? really good friends and that's still like valid in some way you know i see that and i agree with it but i i so often see that argument as sort of thinly veiled homophobia that 
I don't usually express it because I know people are uncomfortable to hear it. Yeah, you know, that's like people saying that. So I shift like Spakuhura and AOS like super a lot, mm-hmm. and I talk about it all the time. It's like it's the Star Trek relationship that I like want the most to be real. Yes, I, I don't know. And I have been accused many times <laughs> of being homophobic because of that. And, and you're like, like, I'm not even no. straight. Like, that is not that is not what I'm saying. I would never do that. And I would never stop anyone from shipping literally anything. <laughs> like, whatever you want to ship, I'm good with it. But I just get sad when I can't find what I'm looking for because it's been eaten up by everything no, else. No, that's... How I feel like, because Kat is a minor character, a lot of the fics tagged with her are actually about other characters and the biggest pairing in Discovery fic is uh, Stamets, Stamets Kolba. And so mm. I feel bad, but I have to exclude Stamets Kolba anytime I'm looking for Kat fic if I want to find anything that's about her specifically. Mm, interesting, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I And also, like, I, I just... That. I just don't read fic about characters that I'm not fully obsessed with. Right. I read about Kat. I read about Laris. I still read a bit of Lin Bei Fong fic in Avatar and a bit of Mei Zuko. And I don't, I don't just sit down and think, I'm going to read a Discovery fic and pick one at random. No, yeah, exactly. You know, I have like favorited tags on AO3 where I just, you know, when I land yeah. on their main page, they show up. <laughs> I have those. And there are small fic, there are small pairings in giant fandoms, like yes. all of them. There are yes. small pairings in giant fandoms because it's exciting to me when I get a new Draco Ginny fic. Yes. yes. Because that's not as popular as Draco Hermione or Draco Harry or Ginny anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I should everything i think that uh i think that kirk is pansexual clearly like all versions of kirk mm. i like no offense to Liam shatner no oh, offense, full to, offense Roddenberry, to William shatner but but uh i'm sorry james c kirk in all universes is pansexual that's just how i feel no no i'm you're not going to any arguments from me uh, and uh, and Spock too. Like I have this. I I have mentioned in Tumblr on more than one occasion that I firmly believe that Vulcans are actually polyamorous, <laughs> and and like or like not all of them, but there is a cultural there is a cultural like ritual for polyamory in Vulcan that is completely accepted and as normal as Bonfar. Right. Right. Because. I think that a system in the 23rd century where you have arranged marriages at childhood and divorce is very, very difficult, polyamory is just to. logical. Right, exactly. It's just logical. It makes sense. Hmm. So, yeah. So, so it's not like I don't think that Kirk and Spock would be attracted to each other. It's just that in certain situations, I prefer other things. No, no, I think that's fair. And I think... I really, I just really like how there's room for everything in the city on the edge of forever. You can even get Kirk McCoy out of it if, if, if you I want. know! You'd absolutely, oh my gosh, when he runs across the street and McCoy says, Jim! 
like gives him this giant hug, and I'm just like, oh. Like, also, just... if you wanted to ship McCoy Edith, I think that would also be interesting. Also good. Also good. Mm. And like, there's every every ship, and that's what we, again I'm saying. Like, we could have more of this. We could have a whole season of just this concept, and have different things happen. Yeah. Like, like like sliders, but not quite. Well, like how Year of Hell should have been more than one episode. Yes. That's what I mean. Yes. Like, how about six episodes? <laughs> you know, six episodes of City on the, on the Edge of Forever, where we get to see Uhura in the past, where we get to see uh, the... What if there is a reality where Kirk tries to save Edith and fails? Like, I want to see that. So... See, now I'm thinking... Like the possibility of a Star Trek miniseries, a standalone with new characters and everything, but where they are going back to try and fix something and experiencing different versions of the same thing. And sort of like a city on the edge of forever slash cause and effect thing where you would really, really want to pay your continuity people well, but really digging mm. into the implications of time travel. Right. In a way that one or two episode stories can't. There are those temporal agents, right? Like, where's the temporal agent? Right. Series. I am super ready for the temporal agent series. I think it could be amazing. You could go into every era of Star Trek and mess it up and then fix it. <laughs> it would be so good. You could do stuff like, you know, in um, Trials and Tribulations where they go into the TOS episode. Like, that yes. could be every episode. Oh, that would be Can you so imagine? Expensive. It would be so good. <laughs> it would be so good. And it would be such a valentine to, like, Star Trek fans because we would know the original episodes and we would, like, be excited for how they're going to change them and how they're going to keep them the same. And Just saying. No, Star no. Trek people, Liz and I are totally available to make amazing series for you. And, like... I don't know how much it costs to make Trials and Tribulations, but like oh, half gosh. of it is already made, right? <laughs> so you just have to stick the little person in the other part. I just think that if Star Trek called us and got us on board, even to just throw ideas at them, they right. would get some pretty good stuff out of it. Call us, just CBS. Saying. You... Paramount. You Paramount Plus. Oh, oh yeah. yeah <laughs> They're now. rebranding. Yeah. Rip to the three people who subscribe to Ten All Access here in Australia. <laughs> it's going to revert, right? I mean, my CBS All Access is definitely going to revert to Paramount Plus. I am actually I not sure. Do I don't think I don't think happens. anything has been announced yet. But CBS bought a network here and then re then rebranded their streaming service as Ten All Access. Oh wow, that's wow. Yeah. Well, I mean. On one hand, that we're really trying to break into the Australian, you know, mm, mm. people or whatever. But uh, what's it called? What's it called when you're a bunch of people that are trying to get you to do something? Uh... Audience? Yes. I guess. Yes, I don't know. I guess. <laughs> like, they were really trying. They're trying to woo you personally. Yes. I had this idea that being owned by CBS would mean that, that 10 was going to make a lot more good Australian television. Hasn't happened so far. But... <laughs> I mean, have you watched CBS television? <laughs> now, I, I love Discovery. 
I even like the production value of Picard is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm gonna say, All Rise, everyone go watch All Rise because the main character, Lola Carmichael, is a black woman who is a judge. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to change like society from within and she really struggles with it and it's kind of great. Is that the series where it turned out that they had no black people on, on in the writers' room at all, and the actors were just had to push back and push back and push back? Because if is Simply, it fixes... I don't know. That sounds like something that CBS would do. It really so does. yeah, <laughs> like this season has been revolving around like the riot, the Black Lives Matter riots, and there's only like one white guy in the cast. He played Wade Wilson in Heart of Dixie, so he's great, and you love him. Oh. That, that does sound fantastic. It is fantastic. And they, it's related. It's related, I swear. Because mm-hmm. Lola, her icon is Uhura. Like, the oh. reason that she wanted to be a, a successful black woman is because of Uhura. And I, I just I, think that I that's just, so great. I have to give <laughs> like, CBS props for their cross-marketing, too. Right, exactly. I, I have to admit that I'm very curious to see Clarice. <laughs> It comes out in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, I am excited for the cruise. I, I love Silence of the Lambs. I liked Hannibal, but it sort of disappeared up its own butt in the third season. And I was very intrigued yeah. to learn that Clarice didn't get the rights to use the name Hannibal Lecter, which means she is forced to stand alone as a character <gasps> and won't have to exist in so much in the shadow of Hannibal the series. That sounds so exciting. I did not know that tidbit, and I'm super excited because you don't understand that, you know, if you say, like, what are your, you know, like, uh, it's a meme, mm-hmm. post four characters that people, if people want to know you, they'll have to understand. Yes. Clarice Starling is totally one of my characters, and Hannibal, not the series, but the second film mm-hmm. <laughs> with Julianne Moore. Yes. Uh, my daughter loves this. She makes fun of me for it. But I call that my feel-good movie. Uh, I'm also going to make fun of you for that because that is hilarious. <laughs> but it's totally my... If I need to be cheered up, if I'm, like, having a bad day and I need to cheer up, I watch Hannibal. And it always makes me happy. <laughs> well, I am very weirded out but very happy for you. First. So, well, it's just the, the very end, Hannibal says... I'm going to cry. But at the very end, Hannibal's like kidnapped Clarice and mm-hmm. he's forcing uh, her to eat people and mm-hmm. it's awful. And he says, do you think that they would accept you as you are? Like, no matter what you do, they're never going to accept you. And all you would need to do is look at, like, you don't need a medal to be accepted. You just need a mirror is what he says. And that, like, I that's okay, what that I need is, to hear. I need to hear someone say... You don't need anyone else to accept you. You just have to accept yourself. Like, that's how, that's that's what I need from life in order to feel good. And so I watch Hannibal for it. I didn't know this about you. Uh, I recommend, highly recommend, the YA novel None Shall Sleep by my friend Ellie Marnie, which is okay. sort of, uh, I don't want to say a YAAU of Silence of the Lambs, but... 
it is very proudly inspired by Silence of the Lambs. I'm excited. That sounds exciting. It's really good. I've, re- I've read all of... I. It's funny because I love... The, the novel and the film of Hannibal are very different. Or, like, yes. you know, the endings are very, very different. But I love both. Like, I, hmm. I am that person who can accept alternate universes very easily. And I have no problem just being really, really happy with both. Excellent. So the other interesting thing is that Clarice is a hidden enemy production. So it's produced by Alex Kurtzman, and the co-producer is Jenny Lume, who was in the writers' room for Discovery on season three. So, wow. and I liked her work enough that I was going to give Clarice a chance even before I knew that Hannibal wasn't a part of it. Like I have been afraid. I've been afraid of Clarice mostly yeah, because I, I have such very personal feelings <laughs> for it and like i enjoyed hannibal the series and i enjoyed uh who was it it wasn't anna paquin was it anna paquin some there was an actress who played basically clarice but not called clarice because they didn't have the rights mm. to clarice darling just like clarice doesn't have the rights to hannibal lecter interesting but so it wasn't it wasn't clarice but it was like a fake clarice and I couldn't, I couldn't, like, get into the, like, after they introduced that character, and she, like, died immediately, so it wasn't, like, it yeah, was a long-term thing, that. but I couldn't, I couldn't, like, it no longer spoke to I, you? I couldn't connect to it in the same way anymore, <laughs> because they did that, and so I haven't even seen, like, the last, the last season, because I just, they, they also killed, like, they killed off all the women in the... It's three seasons, right? So in the, yes. like, the season two finale, they killed off all the women, and it was just sort of like, you know what, I'm done. I'm good. Yeah. Like, I don't need to watch this anymore. Apparently a bunch of... Or a couple of the women ended up together as a couple, and normally I'd be into that, but it really felt like that thing slash writers do where they're just like, get the women off stage somehow. Okay, we've decided they're lesbians. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, this yeah. is Liz Complains About Fandom, the podcast. Well, I, I mean, I, I read a lot more fem slash than slash, I'll be honest. I, I, it's partly I, because I, yeah. I'm a girl and, like, I just am not super interested <laughs> in reading about two men. Like, I'm just not. Sorry. I, I ju- I'm just not very <laughs> but... interested in stories about men that don't have women in them. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard mm. to be me. It's hard to be me. It's hard. It's not hard. It's to... hard to be a heavily misandrist podcast. <laughs> it's not in any way hard to be me. However, sometimes I get sad that there is so much more slash than fem slash or het. Or Jen. Like I sometimes I just want to read about characters having adventures and doing stuff. Yeah. But that re- requires plot, and that plot is genuinely hard. Uh, we've kind of sort of wandered off topic. Uh, we should be talking about <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> you mean Clarice Starling isn't in Sitting on the Edge of Forever? I, suddenly I'm seeing a whole new AU. Uh, <laughs> what I was going to say is, that bit, that scene where Uhura says, Captain, I'm scared, it is mm-hmm. so sexist and it is just an awful, awful moment for her. But uh, – <laughs> following season three of discovery and saru's speech in the second episode about how fear is something to acknowledge and not be ashamed of i I don't hate it so much like it's it's marginally less awful even emperor joe sort of has to come to terms with fear yes 
So it's sort of like, okay. But I like, it's just, you know, why couldn't Scotty say that <laughs> instead of Uhura? Why couldn't random red shirts in the back say well, it? Well, because sexism. I really liked that Uhura was the one was sort of who was sort of like, if you fail, at least you can find happiness in the past. Like that was nice. So I was like, okay, mm. I'm, I'm down with it. you, Uhura. Yeah, like you're, you're exactly Uhura ships it. But I. I don't like it when Uhura, who is the only woman in the quote-unquote main cast, because there's not actually a main cast in TOS, but if you get to, like, eventually, there's the seven of them, right? She's the only woman. Yeah. So she is stuck being, quote-unquote, the woman. Mm. The girl, I should say, because I really feel like they infantilize her a lot. Yes. And, And so... It's like we need an emotional connection. We need someone. We need someone to be scared. You know, we need someone to be scared. So let's give it to Uhura. And it's like, okay, but everything I know about Uhura, and frankly, everything I know about Black women, is that they're not going to say that. No, no. Least of all to their boss. Right. Exactly. I mean, maybe we're supposed to believe that this is the future and people don't have those stereotypes and people don't have those fears, but it was actually the 60s. Yeah. The other thing I noticed was that there's an Asian yeoman on the bridge and when Sulu is exploded out of his chair, he falls into her arms. And I wondered if she was put there deliberately to avoid any controversial uh, multiracial arm falling into Oh, which is gross. Like, it's so upsetting that we have to think about this. And this is, like, the this is the thing that Shatner... Like, Shatner was basically doubled down on saying that, like, hey, Star Trek was, like, super progressive, mm. but even, even so, we couldn't possibly have had someone who was by in the 60s. Like, that wouldn't be... That wouldn't have gotten on screen, and if Star Trek was on screen, Star Wars wouldn't have happened. And it was like, okay, step back. I understand how history works and I understand what like you're saying in theory but you are super inflating your own place in history to like yeah put down people who now in 2021 want to say that Perk is bi like what are you doing also people's head canons and interpretations of a character do not have to be uh, constrained by the limits of the time in which that character was created. Exactly. Like, what what Shatner was saying was technically true, but also incorrect. Right. In the context of the conversation he was butting in on. And, I, and I'm just sort of like, dude, it's 2021. <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't care what was the reality in the 60s because we are talking about it as watching through a lens of February 2021. Right. And like, that's just the way it is. If a, if a piece of media cannot, if interpretations are not allowed to evolve with the time, then ultimately that piece of media is going to become obsolete. Right. I mean, look at like things that have lasted for hundreds of years, like Shakespeare. Yeah. Right? Shakespeare didn't last for hundreds of years by never doing like the 
version of Shakespeare with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, which is like the best Romeo and Juliet ever. Okay, my local cinema is doing screenings of that for Valentine's Day, and I'm like, on the one hand, I want to go, and on the other hand, that cinema clearly failed year 10 English. But... <laughs> But yeah, Shakespeare <laughs> has always evolved with the times. And exactly. It's really interesting to learn about how Shakespeare was interpreted in his own time, but that is not the be-all and end-all of his work. And likewise, hey. you know, a lot of Jane Austen's comedy and satire is lost because we've lost a lot of the context for it, but she still has a lot to say, which is valid. Have you seen Austenland? Uh, I haven't, but my flatmate enjoyed it very much. I really I... love Austin Land because it's saying, like, these are the tropes that you loved in Jane Austen, and you can't live them as if you were in, like, Edwardian times. <laughs> like, that doesn't work because you're not. But you can live them as if you were in the 20th or 21st century. It's, it's so heartwarming because <laughs> it's like... The whole point is embrace your your present instead of like and embrace Jane Austen in your present instead of j embracing Jane Austen in the past, right. which is like something that to bring it back to our last episode, mm. Jane Way didn't learn because she was trying to be Jane Eyre in like Jane Eyre's time instead of in the twenty fourth century. That's a very interesting observation. And I do think that there's a lot to be said for, you know, this media is important and has value to you and also it is very outdated and you need to give it a new context. Right, exactly. There's uh, the, the Jane Austen Book Club also does this. Yes. I love Jane Austen. I love, like, literally every Jane Austen adaptation. They're all wonderful. They're all great. Everything's amazing. But... The ones that are modern AUs mm. like have a special place in my heart because <laughs> they take these ideas and fling them forward in time as if history didn't matter. Like, yes. As if the ideas are more important than the time period that they were created in. And I think that that's really at the heart of Star Trek. It is. And I think when fandom doesn't want Star Trek to evolve to acknowledge its current context, that's when you get season two of Discovery. Right, exactly. And every other, like, every other franchise has the same problem where... Oh, yeah. When you do something new, like The Last Jedi, <laughs> you're gonna get people who push back on it, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't the right thing to do. Right, I haven't watched WandaVision yet, but I keep seeing this headline, has the MCU trained its fans not to accept change? And I think that's an interesting question, and I think the answer is yes, but it wasn't just the MCU, and it wasn't, it was also something that fans did to themselves. Right, it's definitely something that fans did themselves, and the problem is that studios are listening. Which yes. was not a thing. <laughs> but, you know, t even 10 years ago, the fans had less power. And I really think that fans sh should not have a lot of power. Like, you're not going to get the best things. And I'm not saying, like, fans in the writing room. Fans in the writing room should, should totally exist. And we're not but saying that CBS should not listen to us. <laughs> I'm saying that mob mentality is bad. Yeah. It's bad in politics. 
Yeah. Bad in fandom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like Edith Keeler, I believe that humanity and fandom can improve. And <laughs> like Kirk, I recognise that one can carry that attitude too far. Oh my goodness, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> what a lovely sum up. Good job. Please don't cry, you have to read the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @antimatterpod and on Facebook at, at @antimatterpod. <laughs> if you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, especially high reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And we love new listeners. We do. Every single one. They're, they're great. We, you know what? We also love old listeners. So shout fussy. out to you. We're not proud. <laughs> and join us in two weeks when we'll be discussing, I'm very excited for this, zines. Yes! Uh, so what we're going to do, fanlaw.org has a lot of scanned fanzines from the 60s. So we're going to pick one, we're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. And we'll share a link online so that you can also read it and either tell us we're very wrong or very right. Or have I am very excited altogether. for this.